the Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. Today on Government Matters, a new partnership sets up the Department of Veterans Affairs for success. You'll get details on the new connection with the Defense Logistics Agency. The VA's cyber training model that could go government-wide. DHS and DOD are already on board. And another list of setbacks for the nation's most expensive procurement ever. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs and the Pentagon's Defense Logistics Agency have a new partnership that's modernizing the VA's healthcare supply chain. The partnership helps the VA get the medical tools it needs to provide care to veterans. Karen Brazell is Chief Acquisition Officer of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Andrew Centineo is Executive Director of Procurement and Logistics at the Veterans Health Administration. Welcome both. Thanks very much for coming on. Karen, I'll start with you. How did this start? You have a relationship with DLA. Did they come to you and say, hey, we can do this for you? Did you go to them and say, hey, can you do this for us? What did that look like? Thank you and good morning. Um, it's been an ongoing partnership. I, I, I would say we've had some starts and stops um, based on the legislation that's been um, imposed upon the VA in, um, our, in our acquisition processes. So probably the last 18 months, the effort was put um, the partnership, I would say, was put back in play mm -hmm. in bringing the folks to the table, all stakeholders, and finding a way to help us get to yes, to um, increase the way VA spends. Uh, we have $27 billion of spend in 2019, um, of which $18 billion of that was under uh, category management, um, under the right categories, so that we have opportunities for another $8 billion to get us into more of the best in class and buying smarter. Mm -hmm. Andrew, what's the scope of this? What kind of stuff is VHA getting through this partnership? Well, good morning, Francis. So we actually have a partnership with the DLA, as Karen indicated earlier, uh, for radiolo radiology and, and imaging equipment, and that was started in the in the mid-2000s, and that's a, a significant opportunity that we are capitalizing upon. It was actually recognized recently as a best-in-class. Uh, so best-in-class in government is a significant accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So that was on the equipment side. Now what we're doing is we're looking at the medical surgical equipment. We're looking at those items that are consumed in use that also go to support our medical equipment. Uh, it's a great opportunity. We, ha we have uh, about over $2 billion dollars worth of medical supplies that we are anticipating are in this opportunity to be able to work with DLA on. Uh, so it really can be a game changer for us if we can capitalize on it the same way that we did for the equipment. How much of this is what VA is doing through DLA and how much of it is what DLA is doing for the agency? For example, are you just using their contracting vehicles or are they actually procuring and delivering the stuff for you and you're just using your money to pay for it? So that's where, that's a great question. So right now we have a pilot at our Captain James A. Level Federal Health Care Center in North Chicago. Uh, later this year we are going to actually implement the DEMLS, I'm sorry, the, the Defense Logistics Agency Medical Surgical Prime Vendor Contract through a vehicle, an application through another DOD agency called the Defense Health Agency. We're implementing an IT enabler to actually use the DLA catalog to use their supplies uh, to provide support to our veterans at that location. Later this year, we are moving out to our uh, Veteran Integrated Service Network, Vision 20, out in the Pacific Northwest, and that will be the next iteration of it. We're starting at Chicago to prove it, and then we'll take it to our next location to deliver both the IT and access to the DLA supplies through their catalog. 
Karen, do you have success stories already, or is it too soon yet? Is this partnership still too new to be, for you to have success stories to tell yet? It's, we've got about a nine-month pilot mm -hmm. um, at the Federal Health uh, Care Center in North Chicago. Um, we, we have some savings. It, it, it's, it's, I, I hate to give the number, uh, but <laughs> it, it's, it's on the realm of about 8%. But yeah. um, again, we're just looking at nine months worth of data, uh -huh. and we are just barely starting to peel the onion. And the scope of what you're talking about, though, 8% is a big deal. I mean, this has the potential to really save the agency a lot of money in addition to I imagine taking workload off of you if DLA is 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 facilitating a lot of this work. Absolutely. Um, so of course, w in the federal government, we have the all employee survey, and workload is one of the um, number one factors that we hear from our acquisition professionals. And it's not that we would. Uh, be reducing people's jobs or such but what we can do is take those individuals and put them on other priorities that we mm -hmm. have because at the end of the day it's all about the veteran and being good stewards of taxpayer dollars yeah I've never heard of anybody in the procurement shop at any government agency that says they don't have enough to do <laughs> so reducing the workload certainly uh, doesn't strike me as a bad thing what's the relationship been like you mentioned DHA uh, a little bit ago that's an agency that's just kind of getting up and running itself it what's that relationship been like when you have a legacy organization like VHA, I imagine you have a lot to offer to them and them in addition to them having something to offer to you. And that, that's a great point because the VA, actually the VHA in particular is actually larger than the DOD combined for mm -hmm. its medical treatment facilities. But I would offer that the relationship that we have with the Defense Health Agency is exceptional because they have been with us at the Federal Health Care Center working with the IT implementation that, that collaborates and works with the demos, the, uh, the, the supply chain. Um, they have been stewards for us. They have been there the entire time and they are at the leading edge of it because they will be key to our IT implementation which takes on, uh, which aligns to our electronic health record. You know, it's part of the, the Secretary's number, fourth, uh, number four priority of uh, business systems modernization. So we have an IT element to it, we have a supply chain element, and the two coming together, as Ms. Brazell indicated, uh, we'll, we'll reap benefits from efficiencies to be gained and ultimately we'll be able to see the supply chain better, we'll be able to then have more buying power and what that translates to is we have what I look at is, is two people that we answer to. The veteran first and foremost. We want to deliver the best product at the best time to ensure that they've got the best services, health care, etc. But we also answer to the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. and, and as such as we answer to the taxpayer, we have to have IT enablers and business systems that give us the visibility at the enterprise level. We are, we're a huge organization, very distributed. What we need to do is start to see that information, gather it up, so we can make informed decisions. It's a decision support tool, the IT piece that the DHA is delivering, and then we couple that with our defense logistics agency, whose core competency is supply chain integrated logistics, and to me that is a, is a perfect recipe for bringing whole of government together to be able to get what the veteran needs, what the service member needs on the active duty side, to be able to deliver what they need in a timely fashion. And Karen, we have about 30 seconds left. Is that data more broadly, not just focused on this partnership, is that data maybe the most powerful tool that you have now to be able to drive better acquisitions for VA? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, um, data is irrefutable. Metrics is what we need to be able to support our, our, our case to um, further this partnership. Thank you both very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Up next, training the cyber workforce at the VA and across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the agency's conducting cyber training in ways you wouldn't expect. You're watching ABC7.
The Department of Veterans Affairs Cyber Training Academy will give VA personnel basic cyber knowledge they can use anywhere in government. Stephanie Keith is Director of Cyber Workforce Management at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Stephanie, welcome. It's great to have you on. VA has a national cybersecurity awareness strategy within the agency. What right. is it? What does that mean? And why do you do that? So typically a uh, cybersecurity awareness strategy would address annual cybersecurity awareness training. What at VA we have embarked on is an annual throughout the entire year we're going to be uh, producing different cybersecurity awareness uh, activities, information, notifications, training opportunities across the board. Mm, how are you developing these and, and how are you focusing them on what each employee does in his or her job inside VA? So we're taking it from, we're doing the holistic picture of cybersecurity um, and then we are really trying to hone in on the broader spectrum of all users and then looking at how do we target specific technical audiences or the medical community mm -hmm. and, and with different cybersecurity awareness messages that are more relatable to themselves. And that's kind of where I wanted to go because you have so many different types of jobs that are such a wide variety of things. What somebody does at this end of VA is completely different right. than what somebody does at the other end. How are you going about kind of an inventory, I guess, of all of those jobs and then thinking about the way that that person interacts with digital information and data? Well, that's really easy. Um, as most people are aware, we've had to implement the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education Cyber Workforce Coding efforts where we've actually identified all of the positions throughout the entire agency, uh, primarily focused on OIT, Office of Informa Information Technology right now, um, where the, the crux of all the typical cyber activity happens, right? And so we're able to easily identify what those work roles are from a baseline skills perspective and then be able to uh, tailor those messages accordingly. I note that one of these is called the NICE yes. Cybersecurity Awareness Strategy. That sounds very friendly. Yes, it's the NICE Cybersecurity Awareness um, uh, excuse me, nice cybersecurity uh, workforce framework, mm -hmm. and then we tailor it based upon the workforce framework that they have within the NICE community. What does that mean? It sounds nice. It sounds nice, right. So the National Institute for Cybersecurity Education takes industry, federal government, and academia have come together. We have created a lexicon, if you will, of all the work within the cyber realm. Mm -hmm. So some people ask me, well, what does the cyber realm mean? What does the world of cyber look like, right? So the world of cyber is inclusive of 100% of your IT workforce. Mm -hmm. It is inclusive of your typical cybersecurity workforce. There are aspects of cyber effects and intel, obviously. And then there's four different cross-functional areas, such as acquisition, training, leadership, and law enforcement mm -hmm. that are kind of cross-functional whenever they're in that, that area. Um, it, has there been a cultural change necessary at VA to get everybody to think that they are essentially a cyber person? That's what we have underway right now. Yeah. Yes. How are you approaching that to get folks that may be late adopters, I guess is the word, that, the phrase that comes to mind, well, might not think that they this is for them? Right. Culture change is hard, mm -hmm. right? Understanding. Like, people sometimes think, oh, it's just a name change. Well, actually, it changes your perspective on how you need to address your day-to-day -day activities. How, and how that, we, oh, sorry. That's Please okay. finish. But that's where the Cyber Training Academy comes in, mm -hmm. right? So the Cyber Training Academy looks at those work roles helps to formulate what the, the baseline is, functions for that, and integrates the cybersecurity requirements and those non-traditional cybersecurity type functions. Do you have to develop materials for training some of these unusual job specialties that may only exist inside VA, or do the basic cyber principles that apply to most jobs or all jobs apply there too? 
So what we've done is we've actually teamed up with DHS mm -hmm. and, and DOD, and we are a tri-chair for a federal initiative for Cyber Careers Program, where we're looking at it across the board to come up with federal-based standards um, that we can all leverage. Um, and we've integrated all the other agencies that we have um, here in the area so that we can get multiple perspectives on the same work, right? Mm -hmm. um, that way we can all work from the same sheet of music, establish what those baselines are, building out commonly portable skills across the board and that's what the cyber training academy will do is be able to focus in on how do you learn that baseline and then how do you take it and employ it for different mission sets such as VA's mission sets that are vary from you know, VHA to VVA to VACO. Mm -hmm. yes. the, what's interesting to me about this is that partnership that you just mentioned mm -hmm. and I wonder if at some point this could turn into a tighter partnership whether you've envisioned that or not yeah. Um, I, uh, tell me about that because it strikes me that could be a wonderful efficiency at some point in the future if DHS and, and VA and, and all the other organizations are all kind of combining forces. On right, this. so DOD, DHS and VA collectively are the three largest employers mm -hmm. uh, across the federal government writ large. So we've agreed that we need to have this common standard because if we're all building something differently or just one-offs, then the portability of skills and we're all trying to, you know, hire from the same pool of people, let's figure out how we can train consistently, how we can develop and grow consistently, therefore we're not it's more effective and efficient use of, of resources that we have across the board. We don't have just one unique perspective on mm -hmm. things. There's actually a common baseline we can agree to. We have less than a minute left. How will you measure the success of, of all of what we've talked about? The success will be in, in the, from an employee perspective, there will be a, a success. You feel like you've got a journey that you can go on with the Cyber Careers Program. You can actually see where your career constellation of different opportunities can be, right? From an agency perspective, we can see the improvements within, if we can see the improvements within cybersecurity, mm -hmm. the, 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 the incidents, if they're more alert, that type of activity. Yes. Will the the interchangeability of employees who are successful in one organization and then successful in another organization will that also be a measure for you, Stephanie? That will we'll try to be able to measure that. It's mm. really difficult to measure from one agency to sure. another, but that is one of the data analytics we are looking at right now. Stephanie, thanks very much for Thank coming. Thank you very in. much. Up next, what's keeping the Air Force's F-35s on the ground? Straight ahead on Government Matters, new additions to the program's problems list and how hard the fixes might be. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. A gun that doesn't fire accurately is the latest addition to the list of problems for the F-35. A new review from the Office of the Director of Operational Test and Evaluation finds more than a dozen changes Lockheed Martin needs to fix before the planes move to the next phase of production. Oriana Pollock is an air warfare reporter for Military.com. Val Encina is air warfare reporter for Defense News. Ladies, welcome. Thanks for coming on as always. You've both been following this program for a long time. This latest review does not look good. Val, I'll start with you. Is this an, an increase in the number of issues with the program overall? Is the program getting better, getting worse, or is it static? Uh, and the report isn't out yet, so it's hard to say for sure, but judging on what we know about it, it sort of looks like things are pretty stagnant, which mm -hmm. is also not great, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the, the 
problems that have come up publicly, uh, things like the, the gun not being accurate on the F-35A. Um, these are things that the, the Pentagon's weapon, weapons tester has said, you know, have, have been a problem for a long time. In and of itself, the information that we know, Oriana, is fairly damning. The problem is, I think folks are so numb to the issues yes. with the F-35 over the years that what Val said is, probably going to play out in Congress where people go, well, this is kind of the same old, same old with this program. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as she said, the top weapons tester, I mean, we, he's had this in the same 2016 report, 2017 mm -hmm. report, 2018 report, and now we have the latest news. And, you know, it comes at a time when you, the F-35 is at a critical stage as well. I mean, it needs to have some other developmental testing done before 2021, and that's already been pushed back as we recently found out from the Pentagon. So they're, they're seeing this report at the same time, as well as trying to get the F-35 into its next phase of testing, even though two models have already made their combat debut. If I'm uh, uh, somebody at Lockheed, though, or if I'm in Congress looking at this program and trying to decide what the status of it is, I think I'm encouraged by the fact that Poland and Singapore are now buying these planes. Australia, uh, Japan's buying a bunch of them. Australia and the UK are buying. Nobody's bailing out on this who doesn't have to buy it. So is that something that should be an encouragement, Val? Yeah, I mean, I think the the signs that all of these different countries are still heavily investing in the program, um, are committing to it, it's a good sign for the program. It's something that Congress is definitely looking at as seeing a sign of confidence and f financial health. Mm -hmm. The most recent issue with the F-35, Oriana, was the whole discussion about Turkey and whether it's in or out, yep. and to what degree it's in, if it's in. Where does that stand right now? So we're still watching the Pentagon phase out Turkey um, as a developer of certain parts. Mm -hmm. uh, they made a substantial amount of parts. So that has been also delayed a little bit uh, in that unraveling, so to speak. But as Val said, you know, that's why Congress really wants to push the envelope on how many people come in as a partner nation uh, or an ally in some way for this for this program to get other people to make certain parts or also just create a network of people who fly fifth generation jets all over the world. One of the things that I thought was striking about this report, um, the Navy and the Marine Corps gun seems to be working fine, Air Force gun not working as well. There are other issues among the various variants of this. The whole point of this program at the beginning was like the LCS and the Navy, one platform, very slight variations. We've gotten really far afield from the slight variations, haven't we, Val? Absolutely. So with the gun issue, all three variants use the same gun, um, but the Air Force, which is the one that's having the problems with the accuracy, their gun is mounted inside the plane, where the Navy and Marine Corps versions have an external pod that keeps the gun on. So. The problem is probably not the gun itself. It's probably how it's encased in the F-35A itself is contributing to some, you know, inaccuracies, some instabilities. One of the things that you and I talked about a long time ago about this program, Oriana, that I didn't see here is issues with the pilots. Hypoxia was a problem with the pilots for a long time. Are we past that now? Are there some of these other major problems that the F-35 has had over the years that have now been solved and we won't have to think about anymore? Or there's possibility some of these will come back? It, it could come back, and that comes in waves and spurts in mm -hmm. any kind of program. But from for pilot testing and pilot delivery, I mean, you're hearing from pilots, the first uh, Marine Corps pilot actually just surpassed 1,000 flight hours in, in the uh, 
B variant, mm -hmm. which is their variant. So you're seeing pilots who are actually like taking it to new heights, so to speak, yeah. and they're really pushing pushing that testing forward, or they're actually just delivering a ton more jets. So we're hearing from pilots that so far so good, but that's not to say that these things won't come up again as any program would have. And anecdotally, I think you've both reported or told me on the program, the pilots that fly these planes love to fly these planes. That's that's a tremendous turnaround from where it was at the beginning of the program, too. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's definitely true. I've never talked to an F-35 pilot that didn't express an overwhelming love for what the plane can do. Um, but I think that you can look back at the history of the program and say, we made some mistakes here. Mm -hmm. And the way that we acquired it, we put them out, um, you know, testing them, operating them before a lot of these pro problems were fixed. A lot of that stuff was happening concurrently, like, oh, let's play around with the planes, and sure, they have problems, but we'll just deal with it later. So I think it it's going to result in a lot of lessons learned, hopefully, for the department, where they look back and they say, hey, this is great what came out of it, but maybe let's not do this the same way. We have about 30 seconds left. You mentioned a moment ago that there would be pro uh, problems like these with any kind of program. What's your sense of the measure of the, pro the amount of problems and the scope of them with the F-35 compared to other programs you've tracked? I mean, another point that Val just made is just, it's not always what's happening in the air, it's sometimes mm -hmm. what's happening on the ground, mm -hmm. and you're go they're doing a lot of software work on this plane. So that's going to come up time and time again. I mean, they've just redone the software system. Uh, maintainers, of course, have had problems with this issue uh, time and time again. So, you know, we're just going to work through seeing how this, uh, how they take it forward, how the Pentagon works through these issues before they install the next block variant of software into the plane. Oriana and Val, thanks very much. As always, great to have you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow, so talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here? Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management's great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. And this gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment, and it keeps, we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. 
So what about endpoints, Sean? How does this affect or impact visibility? Yeah, at the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint, allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in an endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real-time. What this means is a small to medium agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community. So a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.